Okay, welcome to Plum Creek Chapel, and we are uh, delighted to uh, continue our series after a three-week break, it seems. We missed two weeks, but it was three weeks ago that we last uh, were uh, working on this series, but great to be back from our trip. I won't take the time to give an update on that because I've done that already uh, online, and so I know we got a lot of repeat listeners, and I hate to be too uh, repetitious, but great trip, great to be back, always great to come home, and really looking forward to what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, in a moment, as we introduce our topic, I'm going to read a couple of letters that I've received, one email and one letter, to kind of set the stage for what we're talking about and also serve somewhat as a review. But first, I want to mention a couple of things real quickly uh, that are resources available uh, to you from uh, this week. So Monday, uh, uh, actually Tuesday, I did a podcast called The Days of Noah. It's something I've been wanting to do for a long time, but I was finally prompted to do it by uh, some conversations that I had on our trip, uh, uh, where we talked a lot about the end times, of course, and spirit of the Antichrist. And so I took the time Tuesday because uh, Curtis Chamberlain of uh, Christian Underground News Network, which we usually are on every Tuesday, is still sick. So for two weeks in a row now, he's been really down for the count. He's had to cancel his Tuesday podcast show. So I took the opportunity then to do my own recording. And so I encourage you to listen to that because I walk through what Jesus said there about the days of Noah and how it relates to us and what it really means in context. And so I'm really glad to kind of have that checked off my list. I'd written about it. I have a chapter on it and what lies ahead. I've talked about it in conferences many times, but this is a good succinct overview from the Olivet Discourse of this whole idea of the days of Noah. And unfortunately, a lot of you know really great Bible teachers and Bible prophecy experts really miss it when it comes to this passage for some reason. They, they misapply it and misunderstand what's being said there. So I encourage you to listen to that. Then on Monday of this week was my monthly uh, opportunity to be on Stand Up for the Truth radio with David Fiorazzo. Now, by the way, we're working on having David come back to Plum Creek again, hopefully this fall. But uh, uh, he chose the topic as he always does. And I mean, it's his show, so I guess I should let him choose the topic, right? Uh, and uh, this time he had seen that we are teaching through what is Calvinism and is it biblical. And so he said, hey, let's talk about that. Would you give our listeners an overview of Calvinism? So uh, for those of you that have been tuning into this series and watching or, or, or being or here in person for the Wednesday night series, it'll be largely repetitious, but it's still a good show to listen to because he asks some good questions. He, we do talk about a few other things outside of this issue of Calvinism, um, but uh, that's posted uh, on the podcast channel as well. Uh, so with that, I always want to continue to remind you that uh, Spirit of the Antichrist is just, uh, it's amazing to me the traction it is getting. We just had another order for a thousand copies yesterday. Uh, it's well over 5,000 now, and uh, I don't, I'm just humbled because it's, it's such a burden to me, the, the material in this book that I've been studying and passionate about for 15 years, and to finally get it down, at least in part, because remember, it's going to be two volumes, because we couldn't get it all in the first volume, uh, and get it out there. I was just thrilled if, if one person read it. I felt like, okay, I've, I'm doing my best to get it out there. But the Lord uh, is using it to really get this important message for such a time as this out there. So Continue to spread the word. You can check it out at spiritoftheantichrist.org. And uh, we just praise the Lord for uh, using that book. And remember, it has the gospel in it. So even when unbelievers 
read it because they're interested in some of the topics that we address in there, like Operation Mockingbird or MKUltra or geoengineering or fake elections, fake news, censorship, all those types of things. Uh, they're they're going to begin to connect the dots spiritually and see that there's something bigger uh, at play here. All right, so we are going to move into tonight the discussion of the third point of Calvinism, which is limited atonement. So remember, the five points of Calvinism, uh, best remembered by the acronym TULIP, are total depravity, that's the T, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. We talked at the beginning of the series about total depravity, which Calvinists define as total inability. That's the way they define it. They believe that a person does not have the ability to believe the gospel. The one thing that the Bible tells us again and again and again, over 160 times in the New Testament alone, that you must do if you want to go to heaven, you can't do. Which, that in and of itself, seems complex and strange, and why would God require something that's impossible for you to do? Well, He doesn't. You can believe the gospel. We said depravity does not mean, um, uh, you know, depravity does not mean inability to believe. It means separated. And we've looked at several scriptures about that. They define it as total inability. By the way, in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I have an appendix at the back of the book that lists every verse in the New Testament where it, it demonstrates that salvation is gained by faith alone in Christ alone. And there are more than 160 of them. So uh, we reject the idea of total depravity the way they define it. We admit that everyone is born dead in their trespasses and sins, but nowhere does the Bible say dead means can't believe. In fact, you can believe, and we demonstrated that. And then we moved on to number two, which was unconditional uh, election, which they def they say means there are no conditions whatsoever that you must meet in order to have eternal life. Well, again, there is one condition, and that is faith. Faith, faith, faith. Remember uh, John chapter 8. I don't think I have it on this week's slides, uh, at least that I, if I can remember, so I'm just going to uh, read it. But in John chapter 8, verse 24, we read... Uh, this is the words of Jesus. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Very clear cause and effect. You have to believe the gospel in order to receive the payment for your sins. Otherwise, you will die in your sins, which means you will die separated from God. That's what depravity means. We are separated from God. God has made it possible for us to bridge that gap and be made right with Him. But he doesn't force that on us. He makes it available to all, and we simply receive it by faith. I was talking before we started tonight about John 1.12. Um, and John 1.12 very plainly says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. So faith is the instrumental mechanism by which we receive the free gift of eternal life. So I suggested that rather than unconditional election, which we reject, we hold to unmerited election or undeserved election, because God clearly desires all to be saved. And we looked at several passages that talk about that. Uh, for example, 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved. Well, if God 
only saves those whom he chose, then that seems like that's a contradiction. God's doing something contrary to his desire, right? Well, this is where we get into the idea of a biblical antinomy, which I'll review in just a second. But again, in 2 Peter 3.9, same idea. God is not willing that any should perish. Well, if God only chose certain people to go to heaven, then God is contradicting himself. He's, he's doing something contrary to his will because his will is that nobody perish. Well, how do you explain this? Well, undeserved election, I think, uh, is best explained by understanding the concept of a biblical antinomy. And we talked about this, and I just want to review it before we move on, that a biblical antinomy means something in Scripture, biblical, that is anti-logic. Anti-namos is the Greek compound word there. Against logic or against law, literally. But it's a term that it has come to mean something that is contrary to logic, that doesn't make sense. And there are many antinomies in Scripture that we believe uh, to be true. We believe that a virgin had a child. Well, that's not possible. But the Bible teaches it. And he, you know, Isaiah 7 predicted it. Uh, we believe that uh, the... Uh, the Son of God is fully God and fully human. He didn't, he didn't come to earth and you know, become only human, and then he went back to heaven, and now he's only divine. He is fully God and fully man uh, at, bo at one time, 100% of each. That's an antinomy. How can you be both, right? Uh, so, say, and so it is with uh, the concept of election. The concept of God's sovereignty and man's free will are a biblical antinomy. Though they appear to be contradictory, the Bible teaches both and we must accept them. Again, there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Uh, or, as we've read many times in Romans 11, O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For And then he quotes Isaiah here uh, from Isaiah chapter 40. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. So this is what I want to be very clear about before we move on, because I'm still getting uh, letters. In fact, here's the, the one letter that I mentioned I was going to read. A guy sent me this letter, and he said, essentially after several other pejorative attacks, he said, your view of salvation is man-centered and not God-centered. Remember, he's a Calvinist. Calvinists teach God does it all. You absolutely have no say in the matter. You are completely, utterly passive. You don't believe the gospel. God believes the gospel for you. You are passive. Belief, faith, is the involuntary response to something that God did. You couldn't not believe if you were elect if you wanted to, and you couldn't believe if you're not elect if you wanted to. You have no say in the matter, right? So he says that makes my view of salvation man-centered and not God-centered. That's the, that's the false dichotomy that they set up. It's either one or the other. If you have to do anything, including believe the gospel, which the Bible tells you to do, you're, you're preaching a man-centered gospel. Um, and then I just thought I'd throw this in because I got a chuckle out of it. He said, I am amazed that PhDs can't seem to see their error. Well, I don't hold what I hold because I have a PhD. I hold what I hold because I think that's what the Bible teaches. I, I, don't, I don't care if I have a PhD or not. I never even talk about it or no one 
you know, really talks about it. It's not something I wear on my shoulders. I, my belief in the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel has nothing to do with a degree. It has to do with my understanding of the plain, simple teaching of Scripture. And then he concludes by suggesting that, he, or not suggesting, but saying outright that you believe you saved yourself by believing. And that's the crux of the matter. He, Calvinists think that when we say you have to believe the gospel to be saved, we are saving ourselves. But believing the gospel isn't saving yourself. Believing the gospel, as we just read in John 1.12, is the means of receiving the gift. So how can receiving a gift be doing something and earning it, right? You know, Romans 4 makes it clear that whatever is of grace is not of works. Whatever is of works is not of grace. Grace, by definition, is a free gift. Like all gifts, it has to be freely received. So I'm, I'm not saving myself. I'm accepting the fact that God saved me, and I do that by faith. So if I were Arminian, I would think I have to save myself. I have to be good enough. I have to work harder, try harder, be better, be more moral, act righteous. Somehow I have to perform in such a way that I merit uh, goodness in God's eyes. And I have a whole chapter refuting that notion in the book called The Performance Gospel. That's not at all what we're saying. You're not saving yourself. You can't save yourself. It's impossible to save yourself. You need God to save you, and He did that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But we have to accept that payment on our behalf. And how do we do that? By faith. So again, this is just this idea is classic Calvinist theology that when I believed that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for my sins, somehow I saved myself. I didn't save myself. I received the free gift of salvation from God. Yeah. Do you think that they are that you're not capable of Yeah. Yeah, they definitely teach... The question is, are they espousing the belief that uh, you're incapable of believing? Absolutely. You can't believe. God has to believe for you. Well, well, I think they would say, the question is, what do they think it means when the Bible teaches we are created in the image of God? I think they would say that, that pre-fall we had that capacity, but after the curse of sin entered the world, mankind was fallen, was depraved, Ephesians 2, 1, he's born dead in his trespasses and sins, and then they define dead as meaning incapable of believing. But as we've shown, nowhere does the Bible teach that. That is a theological presupposition that's not taught in Scripture. Dead, by contrast, in Scripture means separated. And again, just in case we're picking up new uh, listeners all the time or viewers, you know, physical death means the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death means separation of the soul from God. We're separated. We're no longer part of the family. We've lost that, that uh, intimacy, that, that, that unity or whatever. And by faith, we are reconciled. Look at what uh, Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5, he says starting out in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Skip down to verse 6. For when we were still without strength, unable to save ourselves, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath for him. Remember, John talks about how we're under the wrath of God. We're either a child of wrath or a child of God. If you by faith trust in Christ, you become a child of God. You're no longer a child of wrath. But listen to verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words, we are separated from God. Christ died for our sins, bridging the gap, paying the penalty on our behalf. By faith, we receive that payment. And then now we are reconciled. We're no longer separated, right? We're positionally back in right standing uh, with God. And by the way, he goes on in the rest of chapter 5 to compare the first Adam, Adam with the second Adam, Christ. And he says, just as in Adam all fell, so in Christ all shall, uh, you know, all, all can be made right. And so we're going to talk about that as it relates to total depravity here in just a moment. So biblical antinomy, uh, we need to kind of understand that the Bible teaches election. It teaches free will. We accept them both. I know they don't make sense, and that's what drives Calvinists crazy. They think it's a cop-out. Uh, they have to have it make sense. And the only way to make it, to have it make sense, as we've talked about before, is to go back and totally land over here on the sovereignty side, which means man can't even believe. Man can do nothing. You're either in or you're out. You know, hope you got lucky, you know, in eternity past. That's all the best you can hope for. Uh, but we believe uh, that, in fact, uh, you do, you can believe. So, undeserved election. Certainly, we believe in election. It's totally undeserved. We do nothing to merit it. Uh, but the biblical antinomy, you know, it's helpful to understand and make sense of it when we think about the distinction between God and eternity and mankind in time, space, and matter. So, God is eternal. Uh, Psalm 90, written by Moses, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in, gener in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You know, God has no beginning or no end. That's why Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. God li lives in the eternal present. Okay, there is no time, space, and matter in eternity. God spoke the world into existence, and we live in that temporal realm. Uh, if you go back to Genesis 1, and I know we've talked about this before, but in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's time. Beginning of what? Time. You know? So it's kind of hard to speak about God you know, choosing or cho you know, God chose us in the eternity past. He chooses us. Both of those verbs have implications for time chose us is past tense you know past chooses is present but god is god is neither he's he, he's eternal he's outside of time space and matter in the beginning time god created the heavens that's space and the earth that's matter so there was 
a time when time, space, and matter didn't exist. God spoke it into existence, and we live within this temporal realm. So it's important to remember that time is not eternal. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but time is not eternal. That's why Paul said in Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Time had a beginning, right? Uh, or 2 Timothy uh, 1-9, uh, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So again, before time. So, uh, you know, election, we believe it. I want to be clear on that. I, I have no problems with election. I think the Bible teaches it. I recognize that some of my colleagues that are anti-Calvinist and, and correctly see the dangers and problems with the Calvinist view of salvation, they don't believe in election and they find other ways uh, to interpret these passages i respectfully disagree with them uh, i don't have a problem with the election that's not my problem with calvinism my problem is that they they go the next step and say not only did god elect but he also mean that means you don't have a choice in the matter i think it's both god elects we have a choice um, so when understood in this way election and free will are not enemies but they're just two equally taught beautiful biblical truths um, from the temporal perspective of time space and matter we can and must believe the gospel if we want to go to heaven from an eternal perspective god chose okay that's that's the teaching of scripture uh, in a nutshell so uh, any questions then about total depravity or unconditional election before we move on to the third point of calvinism so, so far, we really haven't even gotten into the really sticky wicket stuff. Uh, because with the first point, we, we, my teaching is that they misinterpret or misdefine total depravity. We believe in total depravity, we just define it differently. They de define total depravity as total inability. We say total depravity just means there's nothing within you that can merit you know, your uh, right standing with God and that you're you know, utterly sinful, uh, born dead in your trespasses of sin. So that's the rub there. The second point, we actually agree for the most part, and we would use the same verses they do to teach God's election. We just don't take the next step and say that means you, you can't believe. Uh, that there's, we, we don't believe there's no condition. There's one condition, and that is faith. The third point is where it really begins, uh, the divide begins to deepen. And uh, in fact, even some Calvinists would say, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist because they just are at least intellectually and biblically honest enough to say you just can't defend limited atonement from Scripture. I'm sorry. It's just it's transparently obvious. So what is uh, limited atonement? Well, according to Calvinists, Christ died, his death on the cross, was only for the elect, not for all mankind. He did not die for those whom he planned to go to hell. Remember, as we've been discussing, Calvinists insist that those who are not elect cannot believe and be saved. Therefore, they say, Christ did not die for the non-elect. And because five-point Calvinism is a closed-loop system, like it's a, it's a zero-sum game, uh, you, know, you have to have all five points or, or nothing, they therefore conclude erroneously that since God did not desire for them to be saved, why would Christ die for them? So salvation is not available to them. Well, 
as you can, I'm sure, guess, we're going to see that this view is in direct opposition to several clear passages of Scripture. Um, but uh, let me point out a couple other things about this third point of Calvinism first. First of all, of all the points of Calvinism, this is the most controversial. So that's why you hear the phrase four-point Calvinism. Um, uh, and then uh, you also need to understand a very important point, and that is that Calvinists believe that the atonement is what actually saves people. Remember, uh, you don't get saved by believing the gospel. You get saved because God saves you. Everything else is just an involuntary response that you cannot help. Right? So since God does it all, how does he do it? Well, they teach that the atonement actually saves people. Okay, Does that make sense? To put it another way, one Calvinist, Lorraine Bettner, said, the nature of the atonement settles its extent. Because, in other words, because they believe the atonement actually saves people, then of course they have to believe it's limited. Because not everybody's saved. I mean, we all agree on that. It was just a very important difference of how you get there. But neither Calvinists nor dispensationalists are, you know, universalists. We don't believe everybody's saved. So we agree on that. But they say that the nature of the atonement settles its extent. Because the atonement actually saves somebody, then of course it has to be limited because not everybody is saved. Do you see how that argument goes? Does that make sense? That's their, that's their viewpoint. So uh, here's James Montgomery Boyce, another Calvinist. L stands for limited atonement, the doctrine that Christ's death was a real atonement for the specific sins of his people as a result of which they are truly saved. So, as you're beginning to see, I don't believe the atonement saves anybody. I believe the atonement makes everybody savable, but it doesn't save anybody. What saves somebody? Faith alone and Christ alone. That's the one condition. It, it couldn't be more clear. John 8, 24, again, if you, die, if you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. But if you believe in me, you're saved. John chapter uh, 3, uh, I think we looked at this first last time. Verse uh, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. How? Well, verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Very clear. Why are you condemned? Because you have not believed in the name of the son of God. So faith alone uh, saves, not the atonement. The atonement is the paying of the price, right? So the price had to be paid. Christ is the once-for-all sacrifice. He shed his blood, paying the penalty, satisfying the wrath of God. But it's only efficient and effective for those who receive it. I can buy you a gift all day long, and it's actually paid for. I paid for it. I bought it. It's, it's mine, and now I'm giving it to you. It doesn't become yours, though, until you what? Receive it. That doesn't mean it wasn't paid for. I paid for it. Right? But you have to receive it. So yes, the atonement paid the price for mankind. But that doesn't mean everybody's saved. It just means everyone can be saved if they receive it. Yeah. We're going to actually look. The question is how do Calvinists deal with John 3.16? We're going to look at several versus that being one of them and show you what, what they say it means. But the short answer is they say 
For God so loved the world of the elect that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever among the elect, you know, that, that's, they, define, they define the words based on their theology. Absolutely. No, they define it in terms of their theology. And we all do that sometimes, so let's not, you know, be so quick to point out the log and, you know, or the speck and miss the log or whatever it is. Or in this case, it's pointing out the log and might have an occasional speck, if I can turn the phrase. That's pretty prideful. But anyway, you know what I mean. I'm trying to be funny. Um, but, uh, but seriously, that's one of the mistakes that we all make in theology is bringing our theology to the text, and we have to guard against that, and it's, it's very easy to do. Um, here's uh, from uh, Steele and Thomas's book, The Five Points of Calvinism Defined, Defended, and Documented. <laughs> this is kind of the opposite of what our series is. Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. So you see, see, see how they're building their case? Christ's death on the cross is actually what saves you if you're elect. If you're not elect, he didn't die for you, right? Or Louis Burkhoff. And I quote a lot of these in the book as well. The Bible clearly teaches that the effect of the work of Christ is not merely to make atonement possible, but to reconcile men to God and to put them in actual possession of eternal salvation. So he's just flatly refuting exactly what I just said. I say the Bible teaches, and I'm going to show you what the Bible says in just a moment, but I'm just, in keeping with my promise, I want to put it in their own words. So you, no one can accuse me of putting words in their mouth. I'm telling you what they believe. And, and I'm putting it in their own words. But I believe the Bible teaches that the atoning work of Christ makes salvation possible for those who believe. Burkhoff says just the opposite. The Bible clearly teaches that the effect of the work of Christ is not to make atonement possible, but to actually put people in possession of that salvation. Charles Hodge, uh, from the last, actually from the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, I guess it was the early 20th century, Charles Hodge, one of the great Princetonian uh, presidents. The righteousness of Christ did not make the salvation of men merely possible. It secured the actual salvation of those for whom he wrought, that is, the elect, what he means. R.C. Sproul, more from our day, of course he's with the Lord now, but he says, limited atonement declares that the mission and death of Christ was restricted to a limited number to his people, his sheep. That's what they mean by limited atonement, right? Since the atonement is what saves you, not your faith, then, of course, it has to be limited only to the elect. Uh, Wayne Grudem, he's a very popular theologian and a very uh, avowed Calvinist. For God could not condemn to eternal punishment anyone whose sins are already paid for. That would be demanding double payment, and it would therefore be unjust. No, it doesn't demand double payment. It doesn't demand double payment at all. The sins are paid for. Are you going to cash the check or not? I mean, are you going to receive the gift or not? It's paid for. How is that double payment? Christ, as we're going to see in 1 John 2, 2, satisfied the wrath for the sins of the whole world. But if you don't receive that payment on your behalf, if you don't cash the check, to use a metaphor, then you're going to die in your sins, as Jesus said. You know, it's, a, it's of no value to you, Right? So, you know, I don't understand why they, but it all comes down to their theology and understanding that, uh, you know, the atonement actually saves you. If you think the atonement actually saves you, then I guess somehow you could claim that's double payment. J. 
John MacArthur, for whom did Christ die? Well, he died for all who would believe because they were chosen, called, justified, and granted repentance and faith by the Father. See, that's all the stuff that God does. You don't do anything. The atonement is limited to those who believe who are the elect of God. Remember, God gives you the belief, but the bottom line is Christ only died for the elect, according to MacArthur. Or Packer, limited atonement states that the death of Christ actually put away the sins of all God's elect and ensured that they would be brought to faith through regeneration. Christ did not die in the efficacious sense for everyone. I mean, they couldn't say it more clearly. Christ did not, huh? Yeah, it, yeah. the comment is it makes Christianity seem kind of elitist because it's just for the select few. There is an incipient pride among Calvinists. I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm not saying all of them, but in my 35 years of ministry and, ta and being at many Calvinist conferences and even hardcore, you know, like crack, and, you know, and I'm not talking just T4G or Desiring God or Ligonier Conference. I'm talking, you know, there's just a, 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 an undercurrent of pride that, you know, we're in and you're not. And um, it, it's, it's a problem. But remember, these are the same people, and I quoted this on David Fiorazzo Monday, and I quoted it in here in like our second or third session. But remember I quoted John Piper and R.C. Sproul Jr. John Piper saying God willed for Hitler to kill all those people. That was God's desire. <laughs> and uh, uh, God wanted us to sin in the garden. R.C. Sproul said God is the author of sin. I mean, that's a quote. Go back and you can look at, I think it's session two or three, and look at the slides. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what they believe. It, it, it leads to a, a real one-sided understanding of, of, you know, the doctrine of, of sovereignty and the doctrine of free will. So you see what they're saying, just to summarize, Christ's death on the cross actually secures salvation for only the elect. They don't have to believe. It's just they're saved because of what Jesus did and because they're elect. We believe, that's limited atonement. We believe that Christ's death on the cross is unlimited. That anybody can be saved. So let's look at what the Bible says. After all, if you, as you've heard me quote frequently, uh, my friend and mentor Bob Leitner, who's with the Lord now, let us be biblicists above everything else and at all costs. And when and where our position conflicts with man-made systems of theology, let it be. Right. So again, the verse I did quote earlier. Therefore, I said to you that if you that you will die in your sins, if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Jesus makes it clear that it is faith that removes the penalty of sin, not His death on the cross. His death on the cross paid the price, but the actual removing of it, you know, is by faith. It'd be like saying. If I write you a check, instantly, the minute I finish signing my name, that money shows up in your account. No, it doesn't. You have to cash the check, right? I can pay the price, but you have to receive it. That's the thing about grace. It's a free gift, but a gift that is freely offered, which is, by the way, the only way a gift can be offered, uh, must be freely received. And so that's that's the whole rub here. Um Again, 1 John 2, 2 seems to settle the issue. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, 
but also for the whole world. Right? I mean, it couldn't be more clear. Well, Calvinists, it's interesting, when I wrote the book, I, I looked at, you know, dozens of key Calvinist writings, and they're all over the map on how they interpret this verse. I mean, it's so plain that they, they have to come up with all these different uh, creative ways to interpret what the whole world means. Now, I'm here to tell you the whole world means the whole world. It seems pretty simple. But let's see what they think it means. Here's what R.C. Sproul said about 1 John 2.2. 2. John's teaching that Christ died for the sins of the whole world means that the elect are not limited to Israel, but are found throughout the world. So he's saying, here's how he would translate this paraphrastically. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, dear elect, right here in this region of Sedalia, but not for ours only, but for the elect throughout the entire state of Colorado and indeed throughout the world. So he makes it a geographic issue. James Montgomery Boyce, he takes it a little bit different. In 1 John 2.2, the contrast is not between Christians and the as yet unsaved world, but between those Jews for whom Christ died and those Gentiles for whom Christ died. So he would translate it, and he himself is the propitiation for the sins of us Jewish elect people, and not only for us Jewish elect people, but for the Gentile elect people as well. Again, the totally putting a complete different spin on the plain normal reading of the text, which is, he died for the sins of the whole world. Uh, John MacArthur, the whole world is a generic term referring not to every single individual, but to mankind in general. Now, I struggled with this. I'm thinking, is not mankind in general made up of every single individual? I mean, I don't know. I really don't understand what he's what contrast he's trying uh, to make here. Um, and then Packer, when the world is said to be loved and redeemed, and notice he puts John, this is his parenthesis, he puts John 3.16 in there and 1 John 2.2. 2. The reference is to the great number of God's elect scattered worldwide, worldwide, not to each and every person who did, does, or shall exist. Again, that this is their teaching. And these guys, it's amazing to me that on something is so fundamental and so clear. I mean, this is, you know, this would be like a world-class mathematician stumbling over 2 plus 2. I just don't get it. Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. And from that verse, you come away with, well, the world means the world of the elect. I mean, that's just, it's baffling to me. And so, for that reason, I, I struggle to recommend uh, Calvinist teachers. I'm just going to be honest. I, I try not to be pejorative or personally attacking. I readily admit that not everything John MacArthur writes is wrong. He's got a lot of great stuff. But I can't recommend him because what matters most is the gospel. And if he's wrong on what matters most, it doesn't matter how good he is about the charismatic movement or about you know whatever else he, he writes and critiques about. I mean, can't we find someone to critique the charismatic movement that actually gets the gospel right also? I mean, let's start with that. It seems like that's pretty fundamental. Um, some more biblical passages. Those were just some quotes on how they handle 1 John 2. But here's uh, Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for who? Everyone. Everyone. Again, they would say, everyone of the elect. <laughs> but no, no. 
That's you bringing your theology to the text. Everyone means everyone. Or what about 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6? I quoted this on uh, Monday on the Stand Up For The Truth radio program. Uh, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Not a ransom for the elect, but a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now there's a parallel passage in Mark where it says he himself is a ransom for some, but in the context he's not, you know, if you read in the whole context, he's talking about everyone, but only those who believe actually appropriate the ransom. But here, I mean, all we need is one statement, and it's pretty clear. He is a ransom for the whole world. He himself is a propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You can go back to Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us, what? All. And even if you claim, as some commentators do, that in the context here he's talking about all Jews, because clearly Isaiah was prophesying to the Jewish people, were all was every single Jew elect? Or were there some Jews that were not elect? Of course there were some that were not elect. Calvinists would agree with that. So it doesn't solve the problem. All means all. Uh, including elect and non-elect. John 4, Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the what? World. The Savior of the world. Not world of the elect. John three sixteen. We know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now this makes no sense if you translate that world of the elect. Because God did not send His Son into the world of the elect. He sent His Son into the world, right? Born of a virgin. Uh, He interacted with unbelievers all the time. So here's three cases where the word world is used. And, and then they would say, yeah, he sent his son into the world, but only the world of the elect are saved. And, th- and then you've got a real problem. So we believe that Christ's death is sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who believe. Again, John 3.18, he who believes in him is not condemned. Uh, Romans 4, I quoted it earlier. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is what is accounted for righteousness. So the atonement didn't make him righteous. His faith made him righteous. And you have to be righteous to be able to uh, get into heaven, to be perfectly righteous, uh, according to Matthew 5, 48. So John 1.12, we've talked about a lot. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Uh, Grammatically, the last phrase is in apposition to the first phrase. To believe in his name is to receive him. That's how how you you interpret that. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This might have been the passage you you were looking at, one of you, we were talking earlier, was talking about child of wrath. This is it, right here. So, uh, who is it that has everlasting life? The one who believes. So again, according to Scripture, Christ's death is 
sufficient for all. The payment's been made. And that's the reason that if anybody ends up in hell, they have no one to blame but themselves. God is freely offering the gift of, of, of eternal life. And it's totally by grace. We deserve hell. That's what we deserve. We did exactly what God said not to do. And he said, if you do this, you're going to die. We did it. We should die. But God, in his immeasurable love, took the extraordinary step of reaching out, rescuing us from our own predicament, paying the penalty, and then he makes it available to us. But he doesn't force it on us. Forced love is no love at all. Um, so, you know, uh, Calvinists believe the atonement is what actually saves people. Faith is not the instrumental cause of their salvation. It's an involuntary and forced response to the fact that they're elect. It's Christ's death that actually imparts the salvation. And their salvation is not conditioned upon their acceptance of the gift. Because remember, there are no conditions, according to the Calvinist, for you to be saved. It's unconditional election. Right? We admit there is election, but we call it undeserved election because there is one condition, according to Scripture, even though it seems contrary to how can God elect and yet we have to believe. I don't understand it. But I'm teaching both because that's what the Bible teaches. Um, so that's what we meant at the beginning when I quoted, I think it was Bettner, that your view of the extent of the atonement, is it limited or unlimited, is determined by your view on the purpose of the atonement. If, if the purpose of the atonement is to save you, then of course you must teach limited atonement. In, in contrast to all these verses that we just showed, you've got to twist them and find a way to make them say something they're not. But if you believe that the atonement doesn't save you, but simply makes it possible for you to be saved, then of course Christ died for the sins of the whole world, and whosoever will may come. Um, so, uh, you know, Calvinists insist that we are utterly and completely passive in the salvation process, as I, the letter that I quoted, you know, you, you're saving yourself by believing. No, I'm just receiving the gift, you know. Um, you know, it'd be like saying to someone who just received a, a, a gift of $1,000, and then, uh, you know, you say, man, I can't believe, I'm so blessed, God, someone just gave me $1,000, and that person says, well, you must be pretty proud of yourself for how hard you worked for that $1,000, and you're like, what are you talking about? It's a gift. I just told you it was a gift. Someone gave it. I didn't know anything for it. Well, you worked for it. You earned it somehow. You did something to get it. No, it was a gift. I promise they gave it to me. It's just, it's just nonsensical. Um, so Calvinism teaches that, again, faith is not the instrumental cause of regeneration. It's merely an involuntary, inevitable response to regeneration. Um, so I believe a better def uh, term for this area of theology would be limitless atonement, not limited. It's limitless. Anybody can be saved on account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, but his payment for sins is only appropriated individually for those who trust him and him alone for it. So, uh, in addition to all of the passages that I just looked at, which should settle the issue, especially 1 John 2, 2, I want to look at a few other passages that speak to this issue of limitless atonement and demonstrate, in fact, that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. But before I get into those, are there any comments or questions? Is it, are you tracking with me? Is it kind of making sense?
Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's Revelation 22, the last two verses, I think, right? Yeah, 18 and 19 before the Maranatha there. Um, so, yeah, so the comment is, does this passage in Revelation 22, 18 and 19 apply where it says, if anyone adds to the words of this book? I think contextually it's talking about John's revelation, but certainly uh, we don't need that verse to understand the, the problem of eisegesis versus exegesis, you know, reading into the text versus getting out of the text. And again, you know, I don't want to be too harsh because we all make that mistake. In my uh, circles of travel and speaking, you know, I talk to a lot of Bible prophecy experts that kind of do the same thing to fit their theology. That's what my podcast on Tuesday was about, about the days of Noah. A lot of people who are passionate about the rapture, as we should be, it's clearly taught in Scripture, they read into that passage the rapture, even though contextually it's not there. You won't find the rapture in the Olivet Discourse. It's just not there. But they, they make it out to be that. I, I know people that insist that Christ is going to be you know, coming back on the Feast of Trumpets in September, October, uh, well, that destroys the doctrine of imminency, which the Bible clearly teaches. We have two DVDs and videos, streaming videos out there that defend the doctrine of imminency, which is that the rapture could happen at any moment. Well, if it, if it has to happen in September, October, that means it can't happen. I mean, follow me on this. This is not rocket science. That means it can't happen in May. And if it can't happen in May, that means it can't happen at any moment because there are moments in May, right? So... Uh, there's a there's a real problem with that view or you know reading into the text I was talking to someone recently who went to Hosea chapter 6 verse 2 where it talks about uh, two days and they said well that means 2,000 years and that's a reference to the church age and the church age is only going to be 2,000 years which means Christ must be coming back soon because we're getting close to the 2,000 year anniversary of the church age well again the text doesn't say 2,000 years it says two days so nothing contextually would imply 2,000 years. That's bringing your interpretation from your mind to the text rather than letting the text bring it to your mind. So I don't want to be too harsh because I am prone to do the same thing. And I, I you know, learn and really strive over the years to let the text speak. And I can't tell you how many times through the years you know, I've held a certain view of a passage and then either just through my own study of reading it again and again or through iron sharpening iron with a dialogue with another uh, Bible student, you know, or teacher or whoever, I come to realize, oh, you know what, I've, I missed that. You're right. This does say that. And so the theology is a lifelong process, not a product. We never arrive and say, this is it. Uh, we, we, but we've we got to hold our beliefs with a degree of humility. But at the same time, when the Bible speaks, especially on something as clear as salvation, it's, it's pretty clear. Uh, you could be dogmatic about that. Um, but um, so so let's look at any other comments or questions so first let's consider Paul's teaching about the doctrine of imputation from Romans 5 I alluded to it a moment ago uh, where he talks about Christ is uh, the second Adam so imputation to impute means to charge to one's account and Adam's sin was imputed to the entire human race that's what Paul says. Look, therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam, 
judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, Christ, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Now, we know how it results in justification of life is by faith, because in the first part of chapter 5, which I just read, it is being, it says, therefore being justified by what? Faith. We have peace with God. So justification is by faith. That's always been true from Adam's fall all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. The only way anyone's going to be saved and justified is by faith. Abraham, for example, Genesis 15, 6, believed God and was justified, was declared righteous. Um, so, you know, you can read the entire passage in context, which makes it even clearer. But this one verse alone shows that just as Adam's sin in the garden condemned the whole world, likewise Christ's work on the cross redeemed the whole world. Doesn't mean the whole world is going to heaven, but it means the whole world has had their payment for sin paid for. And if they'll receive that payment by faith, John 1.12, then they can go to heaven. If Christ's death only affected the elect, then Paul's analogy here is meaningless. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, were only the non-elect affected by Adam's fall? No, of course not. The whole world was affected. And likewise, it was not just the elect who are affected by Christ's work on the cross. So the sin of the race the human race, was imputed to Christ. We know that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And then the righteousness of Christ is imputed to those who believe. I'm sorry that fell off the screen there, but to those who believe. So, you know, faith, again, Romans 5.1 uh, therefore by faith we have peace with God being justified by faith we have peace with God look at Romans 3 the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe and he goes on to say there's no difference Jew and Gentile so Romans 5 is an incredibly rich theological passage the whole book of Romans of course is a, just a rich theological well to draw from but Romans 5 makes it very clear otherwise the Adam Christ analogy is meaningless uh, let's talk about the instrumentality of faith you've heard me say that a dozen or more times since we started this series that faith is the instrumental cause of salvation uh, the Bible is clear that man must believe to be saved every human being including the elect is lost until such time as they personally trust Christ alone for salvation and here's the quote that I was struggling to remember a couple of times ago, or maybe it was last time, but again from Bob Leitner, there is simply no dis distinction in the Bible between the elect and the non-elect in their unregenerate state. So that's what I mean by, you know, every human being, including the elect, is lost. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but remember, the whole concept is a biblical antinomy. God elects an eternity to pass who will be saved. Full stop. Okay, now let's leave eternity in eternity and let's look at time, space, and matter and what God's Word says about the instrumentality of salvation or, or the, the effectual cause of salvation. It is by faith alone. Only those who believe can be saved. If you don't believe, you're going to die in your sins. So from that perspective, again, there's no distinction in Scripture between the elect and the non-elect in their unsaved state. 
every time, another way to say that is every time the Bible refers to the elect, it's talking about people who've already believed. Does that make sense? And then another key passage, which should be another slam dunk, I believe, is 2 Peter chapter 2. And so the question before we dive into this is, what if there was a passage in Scripture that clearly showed that Jesus purchased redemption through his atoning work on the cross for someone who ends up in hell? Would that settle the issue? It most certainly would. 2 Peter 2.1, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. I just uh, taught on this passage uh, last uh, fall in October, and then again in, no, it was only in October in Duluth, Minnesota, Second Peter, the whole chapter here. But there are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, notice, even denying the Lord who bought them. So the Lord purchased them with his blood. And they're denying him, but that's how he describes the Lord. The Lord is the one who purchased them with his blood. And then he goes on to talk about the false teachers. And at the end, he says, For them it is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Hell. There's no way you can extrapolate heaven from the blackness of darkness forever. So here we have people ending up in hell who the Lord bought. Why? Because the Lord bought the whole world with his blood. He paid the sins of the whole world. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what he did. And um, we looked at all those passages where it makes that clear. And then another, I think, argument against limited atonement is the, the, the Hebrew concept, the Jewish concept of the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. Now, Scripture teaches, of course, that this sacrifice prefigured the ultimate Lamb of God. I'm going to be talking about that uh, Sunday. Uh, I think you're up for worship Sunday, aren't you? So it's communion Sunday. So um, Last time on our communion, I talked about the blood. This time I'm going to talk about the body. I'm going to go to Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. And I, I just uh, put together an outline two days ago. I haven't developed it, but I've got four points from Hebrews 10, taken straight from the text. And then I found a PowerPoint background that I like. And so I'm going to be working on that tomorrow and Friday for Sunday. But we're going to be talking about Christ as the ultimate sacrifice and why he had to give his body uh, as well as his blood. Um, but uh, So he's the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the way, I should put that one in my list. I think I have it in the book. I just didn't put it on here. But if you go to John chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, unless they moved it. Um, John the Baptist says in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, that's interesting. I thought he only took away the sin of the elect. That's what Calvinists teach, so they have a simple solution to that verse. They just change the meaning of world to elect. Um, but anyway, the point is this. Who benefited from the Day of Atonement? The entire nation, right? Now, are we to assume that every Jew alive at that time was elect? Of course not. Were they all believers? Of course not. There were some unsaved Jews in the nation of Israel and some saved Jews in the nation of Israel. They you didn't get to heaven just because you were a Jew. 
Yet the Day of Atonement as a symbol made it possible for the whole nation to receive forgiveness. But each Jew, like all human beings, had to be, receive it by faith. The Day of Atonement was just a prefigurement of the ultimate sacrifice for Christ. And in the same way that the Day of Atonement covered the sins of the whole nation, we call it Yom Kippur today, covered the sins of the whole nation, but not every Jew was saved. In the same way, Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, covered the sins for the whole world, but not every human being is saved. Uh, so that's, uh, I think I just said all this, but uh, yeah, on that day, once a year, the sins of the entire nation were atoned for, yet clearly not all individual Israelites were saved. So to me, this is the easiest point to refute. They're all pretty simple in, in my theology. I don't mean to sound condescending. I just, I really believe this. Uh, the third point of Calvinism simply doesn't stand the scrutiny uh, of Scripture. So I'm really glad that we were able to get through the whole third point, and I knew we would because it's pretty cut and dry, because we really still have a lot to cover, and we want to finish this series this summer because starting September 8th, we're going to do a, I'm bringing in a guest who's going to teach an eight-part deal on how to share the gospel very simply and very clearly with some great tools, short little 30-second to three-minute things you can do on an elevator even. So that's starting September 8th. So we got a few weeks left, and we got a lot to cover, especially the fifth point when we get to perseverance. That's where we're going to have a real, a lot of healthy discussion, I think, because, you know, and, and that and just to whet your appetite for that, I know we're still a couple of weeks away from that probably, but here's an email I got this morning. Good morning, Dr. Hickson. I wanted to write and thank you for the, your current series on Calvinism and your consistent and simple explanation of the gospel. Through your series, I've come to realize how Calvinistic thought influenced me growing up and how much it has permeated the Christian culture, especially, listen, especially the ideas of works to prove you are saved. This idea has wreaked havoc in my life and caused me to question if I'm really saved. Uh, and that brings me to my question. The other day on such and such a radio program, I won't mention the name because it's not about that, um, this, the host had a guest on who basically said, that he wasn't really saved as a child because he didn't have saving faith. And it's this very thing that causes confusion and distress in my heart. And I start to wonder, how do I really know if I believed in Jesus as my Savior as a child? And so I start to doubt my salvation. Um, so she goes on to acknowledge that this comes from the whole Calvinist teaching. And it absolutely does. They teach what's called saving faith. And we're going to get into this in the weeks to come. I'm going to show it very plainly from their writings, just as plainly as we did their interpretation of world. They believe that, that two people, let's say person A is here and person B is here. Person A believes that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again to pay their personal penalty for sins and is the only hope for salvation, and they're trusting him for it. Person B believes the exact same thing. And yet, in their view, one will go to heaven and one will go to hell. Why? Because that's not the only thing you have to believe. For them, real faith that will get you to heaven has to also have the component of commitment, promise, pledge, forsaking, all of these things where you're bringing something to the table. And I'm going to show you plain as day that's their view. Why do they teach that? Because again, in their five-step lockstep system, perseverance teaches that all believers will persevere in good works. If you're not persevering in good works, you're not really elect. So, of course, on the front end, they're going to teach that, you know, you got to make a promise to persevere all the way to the end because if you don't, your faith doesn't count. 
The only faith that counts is that that gets you to heaven. Right? I mean, it's that, that, that the only faith that counts is that which promises to persevere to the end. So they have a whole notion, they call it uh, a sense, I mean, they call it fiducia, that's the Latin term coming out of the Reformation, which is this component that if you're, two people both believe the gospel, but one of them has fiducia and one doesn't, the one without is not going to heaven. You've got to have a pledge or promise to go to heaven. And that's not my words, that's their words. I'm going to show it to you uh, in their own words. So, you know, that, this is the kind of stuff that people struggle with, is, you know, they trusted Christ, they know He died for their sins, He's the only hope for salvation, they placed their faith in Him. Then years later, someone comes along and says, well, because you're sinning, your faith wasn't real. You didn't have saving faith. You had fake faith, or spurious faith is what they call it, and uh, which the Bible never mentions spurious faith. And so uh, it causes doubt and fear, and, and, and it's just it's a terrible thing. And this is why I'm so passionate about the clarity and accuracy of the gospel. All right, I'm done ranting. Uh, any other comments or questions before we close? All right, awesome. Well, have a great week. We will see you on uh, Sunday or next Wednesday.